Broncos cheerleaders, and you're listening to Sports Crunch with DCROM. or whenever you cats and kittens are. This is Sports Crutch with D-Crom. I'm your host, David Cromelo. And in just about 24 hours, all 32 NFL training camps will be in full swing. And because of that, our nonstop NFL coverage here on Sports Crunch kicks into high gear as well as we will take a weekly deep dive or two around the entire league. And what better person is there to take the first such dive of the 2021 season with than Mark Schofield of the USA Today Touchdown Wire. Mark is one of the best, and I mean this sincerely, the best football minds and resources out there for any fan of any team. If you have any questions about the nuances of quarterback play to X's and O's in general, Mark always has a good answer, and it is awesome to have you back yet again, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing great, David. It's great to be here. Like you said, you know, training camps are starting to open up by the time this airs. Most of them will be in full swing. Really exciting time of year. It's a very hopeful time of year, right? Because you've got all 32 fan bases thinking that perhaps, you know, this is the year they can put it together. So it's always fun to see that energy as well. But it's great to be back with you. Excited to dive in, start talking some NFL. Indeed, and we start with burning questions for teams with rookie quarterbacks, and the two quarterbacks in this draft class that I love personally, not named Trevor Lawrence, were Justin Fields and Trey Lance, and both of them are facing a wily vet for the week one starting job with their respective teams. Justin Fields going up against Andy Dalton for the Bears, and Trey Lance going up against Jimmy Garoppolo for the 49ers, but uh, hypothetically speaking, if there's a tie in the competition between Justin Fields and Andy Dalton at the end of preseason play. And if there's a tie between Trey Lance and Jimmy Garoppolo at the end of preseason play, should the bears and 49ers unquestionably start Justin Fields and Trey Lance respectively in week one. Absolutely. David, that would be my mindset. If I were with one of those organizations or both of those organizations, actually, and you have an opportunity with the young quarterback to have that young quarterback on a rookie cross-control deal. We've all known for a while now, dated back to the Seattle Seahawks and their run with Russell Wilson, that having that cost-controlled rookie is a very valuable piece in terms of roster building, roster control, roster management, because then you can fill in around them. But you have to make sure that those quarterbacks are getting reps, getting ready, getting developed the right way. And if you've got a tie situation, it's like in baseball, right? Tie goes to the runner. Same thing with these rookie quarterbacks. If they're on the same page, giving you the same level of execution and production that the veterans are, start the rookies. Let them get those reps because any game they don't start is a missed opportunity to get that development. Now, if they're not ready, then fine. You don't want to rush them. You don't want to burn them out. You don't want to break them. You don't want to ruin them. But if they're a on the same page, giving you that same level of execution as the veterans, get them out there because the sooner they can get up to speed, the sooner you are going to be competitive and you can maximize that four to five year window of that cost controlled rookie deal. Yes. And just a few years ago, the chiefs had capitalized on the rookie deal of Patrick Mahomes. So uh, it's not just Russell Wilson. It happened a couple years ago as well. So bears and 49ers, uh, the sooner you can start Justin Fields to Trey Lance, the better. I personally agree. And uh, moving on to the New York Jets, who have a rookie quarterback of their own, I personally wasn't as high on Zach Wilson as most others were. I would have been even more excited about the Jets had they taken Justin Fields or Trey Lance instead with the number two overall pick. But that said, I really, really, really love the young core the Jets have on offense. When you look at the offensive line, you have a potentially elite left side of the line with Mekhi Becton at left tackle and Elijah Vera Tucker at left guard. 
You address right tackle with a bargain free agent signing in Morgan Moses, which could turn out to be a steal. And when you look at the skill players, you have a long-term 11 personnel package with Corey Davis, Denzel Mims, and Elijah Moore that is absolutely mouthwatering and a perfect young running back in Michael Carter for that Mike LaFleur offense. What should we expect from Zach Wilson and this young Jets offense this season? And do you think Joe Douglas has put his rookie quarterback in the best possible position to succeed? I do think that there will be some ups and downs from this offense. I do think that Zach Wilson will go through some rookie learning curves, but I do think that as you set up, David, this organization is built to win in the years ahead. I absolutely love what they have put. You walked us through it. The 11 personnel package that they have, Corey Davis, Denzel Mills, Elijah Moore in the slot, Michael Carter, who I think is a perfect sort of modern NFL running back, can give you some stuff on the ground, can give you a lot out of the backfield. I think that left side with Becton, with Vera Tucker, who they just signed, is ideal for today's NFL to protect the blind side of Zach Wilson, who played behind a great offensive line at BYU, threw through a ton of clean pockets last season when he made that rise up the draft board. There will be some bumps. And look, you're looking at a division that Miami was coming off a near playoff run last year. We know what the Patriots have done. They have spent this offseason. We know what the Buffalo Bills did last year, and they're bringing back to the fold. So there will be some bumps along the way. But I'm with you, David. I love what the Jets have done for the long term. I love this core they've put together. Yeah, they've got some questions on some on the defensive side of the ball. I do think Carl Lawson was a great addition for them. But long term, you have to like what the Jets and Joe Douglas have built to put around their young quarterback at Zach Wilson. Indeed. And on to Jacksonville, the home of the number one overall pick in the 2021 NFL draft, Trevor Lawrence. And outside of drafting Trevor Lawrence, some of Urban Meyer's first moves as the new head man in Jacksonville have been head scratching, to say the least. Despite having a stud running back already on the roster in James Robinson, who made history as an undrafted free agent last year, the Jaguars selected Travis Etienne, Lawrence's teammate from Clemson, with the 25th overall pick. But even more puzzling, Urban Meyer is apparently trying to convert Travis Etienne from running back to wide receiver. Does the approach he's taking with Travis Etienne concern you about how he will utilize Trevor Lawrence? To some extent, David, I am very curious to see, you know, because rookie unit camp, OTAs and things like that, like you mentioned, there were a lot of reps for Travis Etienne at the slot position as a wide receiver. And I don't know if that was a function of, look, Lawrence had the short of shoulder injury. So it wasn't thrown a ton. So maybe they thought, look, this is an opportunity to get some reps with some other players or move them around a little bit. I don't know exactly what it was, but I'm very curious to see if that was just sort of a, an experiment in OTAs and minicamp, or if that's really what they're looking at doing. I sort of using him as more of a wide receiver slot type player than the running back that he was at Clemson. Because like you mentioned, James Robinson, fantastic rookie season a year ago one of the bright spots for a team that had the record that they did had the finish that they did ended up with the first overall selection which put them in position to draft trevor lawrence but i am very curious because when you start talking about a guy that's going to move around a bit a guy that might play in the slot a little bit and the running back a little bit they have that in lavisca chanel jr already who sort of served in that same sort of role so it's very curious and I'm just going to wait to see. I'm going to take the wait and see approach here. If that continues into training camp or now that we get into training camp and Lawrence is ready and it's full go, they say, okay, well, you had some reps there, but now we're going to run, run you and run it back. And we're going to have a two, maybe they're running a 20 personnel package with Robinson and ETN in the backfield. That could be a little bit interested in something they could do a little bit differently. Um, you know, particularly with Chenault on the outside, Marvin Jones and Shark on the outside. That could be an intriguing little package because it gives you the flexibility. Then say you want to go four wide, you could put each in the slot now you got your four wide look robinson you can go you know three wide have both those guys in the backfield that little pony package that could be something that would be interesting to watch from jacksonville if they head down that road david 
I might be very excited about what they're doing, but if they don't, then I might be a little bit more pessimistic. Thank you for that, Mark. And now on to your favorite team, the New England Patriots, who after missing the playoffs for the first time in 12 seasons and seeing Tom Brady win it all in Tampa, Bill Belichick went on an uncharacteristic spending spree in free agency, as you alluded to, doling out a whopping $159.6 million in guaranteed money. And a huge chunk of that money was on offensive weapons, most notably Johnny Smith and Hunter Henry at the tight end position and Nelson Aguilar and Kendrick Bourne at wide receiver. And you add to that a top 10 offensive line, if not a top five offensive line, and you have an ecosystem that sets Mac Jones up for success as early as possible. However, you said the transition from the Alabama offense to Josh McDaniels offense isn't as seamless as many think. Why is that so? And when is the earliest we see Mac Jones this season? Yeah, this is a fascinating situation, David, because if you talk to people in and around that organization, they'll tell you that they feel really comfortable about 21 of the 22 positions. It's just that quarterback piece that they still need to figure out whether it's Mac Jones, whether it's Cam. Now, I do think that, as you mentioned, the sort of seamless transition that a lot of people thought you might see from Mac Jones from the Alabama offense to the Patriots offense isn't quite the easy sort of round peg into a round hole situation. You watch that Alabama offense very RPO heavy, very play action heavy, which might sound like New England, but at the same time, he was taking Mac Jones was vertical shots downfield where he'd run RPO, throw deep, run play action, throw deep. Whereas when you watch the New England Patriots, particularly during the Tom Brady era, their play action passing game was more play action and horizontal. We're going to throw crosses. We're going to throw slants. We're going to throw outs, things like that. Get the ball out of the hand quickly of Tom Brady's hands and maximize yardage after the catch. So there will need to be that sort of evolution of the offense a bit, either to get more vertical off of play action and RPO designs, or to just get Mac Jones into a position where he's going to maximize that yardage after the catch on the quick throws like we traditionally saw from the New England Patriots offense. So there will need to be an adjustment, whether it's from player or playbook, that part remains to be seen. But I do think that, look, if they could get a better version of Cam than they had last year, and let's be honest, it might not be hard to do that because it's hard to be worse than Cam was last year. That was a bad passing game. They feel very good about the team, but they also recognize that, A, they might not get that Cam. They might not get a better version of Cam. They had an opportunity to draft a quarterback, and that will set them up to potentially run to Mac Jones at some point this season. But even if Cam does play well, now you have an opportunity to have Mac Jones for 2022 and beyond. So they wanted to take advantage of that. The sort of elephant in the room here, week four, Tampa Bay at New England, because there is that Tom Brady return lurking. Oh, yeah. And I think if you sat down with Bill Belichick, you get a chance to go out on his boat and have an adult beverage or two and ask him about that game. He'd probably tell you, I don't want to throw Mac Jones into that game. I don't want to throw him into that environment. That's going to be the return of Tom Brady with the pregame ceremony at the 50 yard line. And it's going to be a whole circus, you know, every sort of, you know, you're going to have, it's going to be the national game of the week. You know, it's a road game for the NFC. And so obviously I think, you know, Fox will be there. It will be like a whole event. You don't want to throw Mac Jones into that. So I think, if you asked Bill Belichick about that game and about Mac Jones and all that, he'd say, look, if Cam is awful out of the gate, we're going to try to ride it out to week five because I don't want to throw Mac Jones in that. Now that's just me guessing, but I'd imagine that might factor into some of their decision-making here. Now, look, if it's a situation where Cam is bad in training camp and they just think he's not going to give us a shot to win week one, then they'll just have to do it and just ride that out and give him three weeks to get ready for that environment. But if they can get five through this season with Cam Newton and be competitive, I think that's what they're going to try to get. 
Now on to burning questions for championship contenders, starting with the Rams. And after they traded for Matthew Stafford, many were expecting the best Rams offense of the Sean McVay era. But those feelings took a huge punch to the gut last week as Rams running back Cam Akers suffered a season-ending torn Achilles while working out. How much should we temper expectations for this Rams offense as a result of the brutal injury to Cam Akers? And what schematic adjustments, if any, should we expect? You know, it's interesting, David, because a lot of the current prism that we sometimes view this game through, which is the idea that running backs don't matter. And that idea that a lot of the run game production is more offensive line and scheme dependent than running back dependent really started. It's Genesis was, you know, that 2018 Rams team with Todd Gurley with all McVay's outside zone stuff, running out of 11 personnel and running against light boxes. And that's just an example of how Sean McVay for all the genius tags that he gets and all the things that people talk about from a passing game perspective, really some of the brilliant stuff he does schematically is in the run game. You know, whether it's that season with the outside zone, wide zone stuff and taking advantage of lighter boxes or recently when they've gone maybe a more duo based offense, some more gap power stuff, and really sort of done some stuff even with windback. Nate Tice from The Athletic has a recent sort of thread on Twitter about their windback design where it's almost like a counter where running back will start to one side, then by design cut back to the other side. They do some brilliant stuff schematically, and they've got a solid offensive line. Obviously, Andrew Whitworth, the veteran at left tackle, and the rest of the guys up front where Henderson who can step in and give you some of what you were expecting from Cam Akers, that the offensive line, the schematics, I don't think that this is a cause for a panic button situation because I think with McVay and what they do schematically, they could still get run game production. The biggest piece of course is Matthew Stafford. And what you're getting in Matthew Stafford in LA is something that McVay hasn't had yet, which is a decisive quarterback. One of the sort of reasons that Jared Goff never sort of lived up to his first overall pick billing was he remained an indecisive quarterback at critical moments in that Super Bowl against New England, for example. Matthew Stafford is anything but indecisive. He's a very decisive quarterback. He would make his mind, get the ball out quickly. That's something McVay has not had. Maybe it's not the most mobile quarterback. We've certainly seen a tendency that McVay wants some mobility at the quarterback position. Staffing can give you some of that, but it gives you that decisiveness. I think that's going to be critical for this offense. So I know there's some people clamoring for that panic button. I wouldn't hit it just yet. I think they're going to be okay. It'll be interesting to see how the Rams deal with the loss of Cam Akers. And now on to the Rams division rival, the Seattle Seahawks, who with the presence of new offensive coordinator Shane Waldron, who came over from the Rams, Waldron is known for his creativity and has been praised by Russell Wilson as, quote, an amazing mind and super collaborative. With Waldron now in the fold, is this the season we finally see the Seahawks take the shackles completely or almost completely off Russell Wilson? I hope so, David. And I think a lot of people, you know, have been clamoring for those kind of days. This time last year was that phrase, let Russ cook, right? That was the idea out in Seattle, like let him play, let him be the quarterback. He can be that didn't quite come to fruition, but with Shane Waldron, look, you're going to see some different stuff. Obviously that sort of Sean McVay sort of influence at school of thought. You might see some of that outside zone, wide zone, boot action stuff, get Russell Wilson moving outside of the pocket where he sometimes likes to be anyways. I mean, sometimes there are moments where Russell Wilson will bail out of clean pockets. These boot action, you know, rollout designs will put him on that sort of familiar footing. I love the receiving core that they have. I think Dwayne Eskridge was a nice little piece. You do some 11 personnel stuff there. You know, they do have a question at the tight end spot. You know, they got Colby Parkinson, who they drafted in the fourth round two years ago, Will Disley. I know there's some questions about tight end, so you might see, you know, 
a lot more of 11 personnel than you have in years past. I know they brought in Gerald Everett. It's also a nice piece. The Rams did some stuff with him. Shane Waldron certainly knows him as well. Everett, somebody that you might see at times lined up in the backfield. They did some stuff with them out of the fullback position as well. So they could do some 12 personnel stuff at times. So it's going to be an interesting offense to see. I do think, though, to the point about the creativity, the collaboration between Waldron and Wilson, I do think this might be the year that we see sort of that let Russ Cook catchphrase really catch on. I hope so, too. And from one great quarterback to another, the best quarterback in the NFL, and I'm obviously talking about Patrick Mahomes and his Kansas City Chiefs. And after the epic debacle that was Super Bowl 55, the Chiefs wasted no time in remaking that offensive line. In free agency, they signed all-pro guard Joe Tooney, who you know very well from his Patriots days, to a mega deal. And then on the eve of the draft, they traded for rising star offensive tackle Orlando Brown Jr., who will now protect Patrick Mahomes' blind side. And in the draft, they come away with a potential steal in center Creed Humphrey. And by the way, a big shout out to Creed Humphrey's agent, Ken Sarnoff, who is an honorary friend of this podcast. Ken, congratulations on your client Creed uh, going to the perfect place uh, to play with the perfect quarterback. And if this new Chiefs offensive line is as improved as advertised, could this be the best season of Patrick Mahomes' illustrious career to date? It certainly could, David. It certainly could. And, and what you just walked the listeners through there is one of the reasons I love free agency and draft time, because, you know, it's not like during the weeks when coaches get to the podium and say, look, you know, yeah, I know our opponent this week is 0-15, but they're the best football team I've ever seen on film. Like, they're fantastic. They're well coached. Like, you can't hide. You have to make picks. You have to make decisions. And that time period the free agency period the draft period it gives us a window into how these teams feel about their rosters now anybody that watched the super bowl knew they had to protect patrick Mahomes. like they could not protect him on that night on them on that field at raymond james stadium at raymond james field they couldn't do it and so they had to address the offensive line but look joe tooney orlando brown Kyle Warren getting him out of retirement. Creed Humphrey in the second round, a fantastic pick. They're going to get two guys that opted out last year. Lauren Duvet-Tardif, uh, the, the doctor in Canada, who opted out because he was going to help on the front lines against COVID. He's back. Lucas Nain, who they drafted last draft cycle, he's coming back. They have a ton of fresh names on the offensive line. And so I do think that they're going to get their best five out there. I don't know who that best five is. They'll figure it out over the next couple of weeks. And they'll have Patrick Mahomes protective, but he still has – Tyreek Hill. He still has Travis Kelsey. CEH, I think, is going to have a great season. Michael Hardman, I think, is going to have a great season. They love Demarcus Robinson. Cornell Powell is an interesting guy that they drafted in the fifth round. And so there's some serious talent on this team. And yes, they still have Patrick Mahomes, who's everything that I've read is ready to go after the turf surgery, turf toe surgery. So they're going to be dangerous yet again. They most certainly are, and he could be more dangerous than ever, as uh, both you and I alluded to. And moving on to Josh Allen, the runner-up quarterback in the AFC last year. And Josh Allen, he was a guy that both you and I and most others had serious doubts about when he first entered the NFL. But to my joy and yours and almost everybody else's, hopefully, he has proven nearly all of us wrong as he squarely entered the conversation as a top-five NFL quarterback with an MVP-level performance last year. And what's even scarier is that he still has some sizable holes in this game that need fixing in order for the Bills to take that next step. Which of those holes must Josh Allen address the most this season, in your view? You know, I think, David, I think the biggest question I have for him is this. Last year at the start of the season, and certainly the fact that they played the Dolphins, who played a ton of man coverage last year, given the talent they have in their secondary, he carved up man coverage out of the gate last year, week one, week two, week three. He was just fantastic against man coverage early in the year. But then – the Titans game, the Chiefs game in the regular season. You saw a bit more zone in those games. 
And it took him a couple of weeks to sort of figure that out. It really wasn't until that 49ers game, which was a week like nine, 10 or something like that. The Denver game late in the season, certainly the New England Patriots game late in the season. When he saw his own coverages in those weeks, he just obliterated them, just like carved them up left and right. The big thing I need to see from him this year is it doesn't need, it could, it can't take two weeks for him to figure that stuff out. If you go into a game plan expecting to see a lot of man coverage and they come out and say, look, we're going to throw a bunch of drop eight zone stuff at you, match stuff, quarters and all that stuff. It has to be like a drive or two to figure it out. Like in, in this loaded AFC, I mean, you look at Kansas City, who we just talked about Buffalo right now, Cleveland, Baltimore, like there are some really good teams in the AFC this year. A week or two of figuring stuff out could be the difference between winning the division and getting potentially a bye week and not making the playoffs. And so he can't take two weeks to figure out what teams are going to throw at him. But this is a great problem to have, Bills fans. It means that he's basically filled in most of the questions in his game, you know, questions that people like me had going into his draft cycle. And now defensive coordinators have to spend weeks trying to figure out what are we going to do against this guy? You know, we can't just line up and play man coverage. He's going to eat us apart. We're going to have to do some different things exotically in terms of zone coverage schemes to try to confuse him. That's a good place if you're a Bills fan because that means defenses have to try to do things differently against him. So the Buffalo Bills are in a great position with everybody they're bringing back, the talent that they have, and the, the development we've seen from Josh Allen. That's the one that I'm very curious to see, though. Can he sort of make quicker adjustments to the adjustments in the season ahead? I uh, am no film expert. I am not good at X's and O's whatsoever, but I do notice sometimes still in Josh Allen's game that he takes needless sacks one times too many. Uh, is that something you would like to see him get addressed this year as well? Yeah, absolutely. And, and a lot of that goes back to there's still inside Josh Allen, that hero ball element that we saw in Wyoming where back when it was, you know, he was playing in at Wyoming, you know, Every plan B for him was I'm going to roll out and make something miraculous happen with my right arm. He's really sort of cleaned that up, but there are still moments when he feels like he's athletic enough, he's big enough, he's strong enough, and he has an incredible enough arm that he can sort of move around in the pocket and just sort of make something happen. And that leads to those needless sacks. So I would like to see him get rid of that and clean that up, David. And he's done a pretty good job of it, but that's another area where if he becomes that sort of top five MVP type of quarterback, he'll need to clean that up again as well. And moving on to the Tennessee Titans, who may be on the borderline of championship contention and may cross that threshold if their defense indeed improves. And almost two months ago, the Tennessee Titans signaled that they were all in by training for Julio Jones. Does Julio Jones addition to an offense that includes a top 10 wide receiver in A.J. Brown, arguably the best running back in the game in Derrick Henry, and a quarterback who has played at a Pro Bowl level the past two seasons, Ryan Tannehill, does Julio Jones make the Titans offense the offense that could best match the Kansas City Chiefs pound for pound in the AFC? I think there's that potential. I think Jones is a fantastic fit in what they like to do conceptually. Obviously, this stuff off of play action with Derrick Henry, like you mentioned, you look at a lot of what they did last year, two receiver concepts where you've got the deep post and the crosser, whether it's Yankee, Portland, Mills, however you want to phrase those. Now you've got A.J. Brown on one route. You've got Julio Jones on the other. And I think you look at what they could potentially build. There's a reason to think that this could be a very good offense. Now the question is the tight end spot, right? You know, Because yeah. they lost Jonu Smith. That's going to be a departure that 
you know, we saw in years past that the Tennessee Titans, they like to run a lot of 12 personnel. They like to lot of, use a lot of multiple tight end packages. Now, Anthony Fersker, is he going to be the guy that, you know, picks up that slack? Miller Forrestal, undrafted free agent, Alabama, I kind of liked him, but it was a weak tight end class anyway. No, so tight end's going to be a bit of a question mark. I really like their offensive line. Ben Jones, I think, is one of the game's better centers. Tyler Luan, very good tackle. Um, I, I do like the addition of Josh Reynolds as well. It gives him another sort of slot piece. So they, if they want to be more 11 personnel now, they've got three guys that could do it. Des Fitzpatrick, certainly a speed of receiver as well that they got in the fourth round. So the weapons are there. The potential is there. It might take some time to sort of figure it out. Let's also not forget you have a bit of potential brain drain, right? Arthur Smith, he's now down in Atlanta, sort of the mastermind of this Ryan Tannehill offense we've seen the past couple of years. Todd Downing, he's a very good offensive coordinator, but you might see sort of, you know, some, some you know, learning curve there as well. I think you're right, though. Ryan Tannehill is one of the more underrated quarterbacks in the game today. You look at top 10 or top 11 position list of quarterbacks, sometimes you don't see Ryan Tannehill in there. He should be. He's a very good quarterback. He's ideal for this offense. He's another quarterback that I love to watch every week. And speaking of Ryan Tannehill, your pro comparison for Justin Fields was a more athletic version of Ryan Tannehill. And in the past, lots of fans would have said, uh-oh, when hearing such a thing. But I feel the exact opposite way, especially as a Bears fan, given Tannehill's aforementioned play since he joined the Titans. Would it be a good idea for Bears fans to watch some of that Ryan Tannehill game tape from the last two years to give them a basic idea of what to expect from Justin Fields at minimum? I think so, David. I think that's a good idea because I, I do think, and look, I, I'm always bad at comps, but I do think that that one really sort of fit because I think if you watch sort of Ryan Tannehill in the pocket, you watch Justin Fields in the pocket, you will see a lot of similarities. I think there's some conceptual stuff in the Titans offense that you saw from Ohio State. They didn't, I mean, I, I actually looked at this today and I think, you know, Justin Fields had maybe 25, 22 passing attempts off RPOs. It was a lot more traditional play action type stuff, probably similar numbers to the RPOs that the Tennessee Titans were running with Ryan Tannehill last year. So I think there's some schematic familiarity, some schematic overlap between what the Titans do and what Ryan Davis doing with Justin Fields. So I think that's, that's a smart thing. If you're a Bears fan, watch a little Tennessee. You might get a little flavor for what Justin Fields will bring to the NFL. Thank you, Mark. And now let's discuss some promising rosters with quarterback deficiencies. And we start in Carolina. And I really, really, really love what Matt Rule is building there. As I said a few weeks ago, when Panthers insider Sheena Quick was on the program, the Panthers have a promising young core on defense with Derek Brown, Jeremy Chin, who was a bona fide defensive player, defensive rookie of the year candidate last year, and Brian Burns, who I believe can cement himself as a top five pass rusher in the game this year. Now, on offense, you obviously have Christian McCaffrey coming back and an array of pass catchers with DJ Moore, Robbie Anderson, and promising rookie Terrace Marshall Jr., who knows the offense like the back of his hand, having played for Joe Brady at LSU. But I'm not as excited about them going forward with Sam Darnold as I would have been had they selected Justin Fields. I understand Sam Darnold is only 23 and he has a big draft pedigree, but the analytical odds are against him becoming a franchise quarterback. But do you think the marriage between him, those weapons, and the Joe Brady offense gives him a good enough chance to beat those odds? I do think it gives him a good enough chance, David. And I do think that, look, there's an opportunity here for Joe Brady to cement himself as the hot head coaching candidate next off season, because like you just walked through, there's, there's talent on both sides of the football. I think Terrence Marshall Jr. is a fantastic fit. No surprise that the Panthers liked him given the familiarity with Joe Brady in that offense. I think Deontay Brown in the sixth round was a fantastic pick for them. Man, that size that moves that way. Pretty impressive guard. I kind of like Tommy Tremble. I think he was sort of miscast, misused at Notre Dame as a pure block and tight end. I think there's more to his game. And look, 
know, you look at the Panthers, DJ Moore, Robbie Anderson, there's some weapons there on the offensive side of the ball. Now it's Sam Darnold who has to live up to that hype, has to live up to those expectations. If anybody can sort of fix Sam Darnold, it's Joe Brady, right? You're going to see a lot of empty from time to time. You're going to see a lot of Christian McCaffrey flexed out in the slot, getting him some favorable matchups where Sam Darnold can know, look, because of the personnel and the shifts and the movement and stuff, I've got him one-on-one against a linebacker. I'm just going to take that throw. I don't have to think. Chris McCaffrey against a linebacker is a throw I'm going to make nine times out of 10 and be comfortable with whatever happens because it's the right read, right decision, right throw. So Donald's going to be in a very good position to be successful. And let's all forget, he's removed from Adam Gase. And say what you want about Adam Gase. He had the reputation of a quarterback guru, quarterback whisperer, largely built on the back of handing Peyton Manning a playbook and saying, I will see you Sunday. You go do what you do. I will go do what I do. And so look, David, you know me. I'm a cat guy. My cats could have coached. Peyton Manning and become quarterback whisperers because it's Peyton freaking Manning. So look, it's tampered down. Now Sam Donald gets to play for Joe Brady. And so I, I think the, 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 the chance is certainly there that Sam Donald can have a better season than we've seen from him, given the separation from Gase, given Joe Brady, given the talent. I'm shall we say cautiously optimistic about Donald and Carolina this year. Yeah. I hope he proves us wrong as well. He's a good kid. And speaking of Peyton Manning, You know I love the Chicago Bears, but there is one team I root for instead of them when they play each other, which is very rare, thank goodness. It's once every four years, even though I'm a nervous wreck when they play each other and I get mixed emotions either way, regardless of the outcome, is the Denver Broncos. And as many analysts believe, the Denver Broncos have quietly assembled a deep and talented young core, yet they currently have one of the five worst quarterback rooms in the NFL. And given that the expected has occurred in the Aaron Rodgers saga, the Broncos' next quarterback upgrade won't come until next March at the earliest. So we have a quarterback competition between Drew Locke and Teddy Bridgewater. And a few weeks ago on this program, my good friend Romy Bean, who covers the Broncos for CBS Sport Denver, and by the way, she's a fantastic, fantastic, fantastic reporter. Follow her on Twitter at Romy underscore Bean. And Romy knows this team, folks. Take everything she says seriously. And she said just a couple weeks ago on this program that she thought it was Drew Locke's job to lose. Is it the right thing for the Broncos to do everything possible to make sure that Drew Locke wins the job fair and square? I think so. And you're right, David. Romy is tremendous. She's fantastic. She's brilliant. She's one of my favorite people on Twitter. And look, when she says something, I pay attention. And when she says that, look, they're trying to set Drew Locke up, I, I understand it and I believe it. And I think, again, it gets you to that cost-controlled quarterback on a rookie deal, right? Because as you said, David, they have quietly put together a very talented roster. I love their 11 personnel package with Sutton, with KJ Hamler, with Jerry Judy, with Noah Fanta tight end, with Javante Williams at running back. I absolutely love his fit in Denver. I really like this offense. The question is at quarterback. Now, if you can get Drew Locke to be a NFL average quarterback, this is a team that can make a, make a move into the playoffs. I mean, that's how good this roster is. And I do think it's smart to set up the young quarterback, given the economics at play, given the talent level. Drew Locke is a very talented quarterback who makes some NFL throws. Go back and watch his game against a team we just talked about, the Carolina Panthers, who have a very good defense in place. And you will see NFL reads, NFL manipulation with his eyes, NFL throws. And so I think there's a good NFL starting quarterback inside Drew Locke. And with the talent around him, the potential is there for Locke to reach that. Will he do it? That remains to be seen. Again, you know, I, I use the phrase sort of cautiously optimistic. The people in the room had the opportunity to draft a Justin Fields, to draft a Matt Jones, to draft any other of the potential quarterbacks in this, in this class. They could have gone really hard at, at trading for somebody. 
there we're sitting here at the end of July and it's Drew Locke and it's Teddy Bridgewater. That tells you that at least some people in the room think that this kid can do it. And so I think that the talent around him gives him the chance to do that. And I'm hopeful that he puts it together this season. Oh, very, very, very fascinating take there, Mark. And all of Broncos country is going to be praying that you're proven right about Drew Locke. Yet, despite that quarterback situation, many still expect the Broncos to be a tough out for everyone they play this season because of what they have on defense. This year, you, health permitting, have Von Miller and Bradley Chubb coming off the edge together for the first time since 2018. And also up front, you have a very, very underrated defensive lineman in Shelby Harris, who uh, bats balls uh, more than any player not named J.J. Watt, and a rising secret superstar defensive lineman in Draymond Jones, giving you plenty of options to generate pressure without blitzing. But where this Denver defense looks super scary right now is in the secondary, with arguably the best safety tandem in football with Justin Simmons and Kareem Jackson, and at least a four-deep corner rotation with Kyle Fuller, Bryce Callahan, Ronald Darby, and rookie Patrick Sertan II, who might end up being the best uh, defensive player from this draft class would you be either surprised or shocked if the Broncos ended up as a top 10 defense this season if not a top five defense this season I don't think so and and there's also something else to remember here that we're sort of in this era right now and you're seeing a lot of teams and look Brandon Staley parlayed this into an NFL coaching job right sort of cut his teeth under Vic Fangio and one of the things that Staley did last year was show too high pre-snap then either spin it to something else or stay in too high and dare teams to run the ball with that light box, play light up front, play athletic in the secondary. And that's something he also learned from Vic Fangio. So that sort of too high look, that's sort of what teams are using to combat the modern NFL offenses, daring them to run the ball. But it also gives you that ability to sort of handle that outside zone, wide zone boot action because Fangio was one of the you know defensive minds when he was in Chicago that put together the blueprint for how to slow down the Rams and, you know, everybody like Bill Belichick sort of copied that game plan in Super Bowl 53. And so, you know, Vic Fangio is a very smart defensive mind. He has some incredible pieces to play with. You mentioned Chubb and Miller being together for the first time in a while. That's going to be huge up front. And let's also remember this. One of the, there's like five debates that happen every summer during football offseason on football Twitter. One of the most popular ones is the old debate between is pass rush more important or is coverage more important? But if you read Bill Belichick, he will tell you, you need both, right? You could have the best pass rush in the world, but if guys are falling down in the secondary, the quarterback just has to make one guy miss and he's got a touchdown. You could have the best coverage in the world, but if the quarterback has all day back there, eventually somebody's going to get open. But if you have a pass rush like the Broncos are going to have and the coverage like the Broncos are going to have, that's the recipe for a, like you said, top 10 defense. Top 10, if not top five. And moving on to teams with second-year quarterbacks. And yesterday, it was reported that Joe Burrow, who is coming off a multi-ligament knee injury, will be full go immediately once the Bengals begin training camp. And as encouraging as that is, I am still very, very worried about the Bengals' offensive line. The upgrades they made to that unit in both free agency with Riley Reef and the draft with uh, most notably Jackson Carmen were uninspiring, to say the least. The quality of protection the Bengals have as was shown last year, could either make or break Joe Burrow. And I fear that the Bengals may regret the decision to draft Jamar Chase over Panay Sewell down the road. In your view, however, how much improved is this Bengals offensive line compared to last season? And how, if at all, is Joe Burrow better equipped to deal with below average offensive line play? Well, I think one way to look at this is that offensive line was so bad that even with the improvements they made, how you feel about them, it's still an improvement because this was a bad offensive line and Burrow was battered even before that injury happened. And so I I think that 
yes, the decision to draft Mar Chase over Petty Sewell is going to be one that will be re-litigated and re-re-litigated down the road, particularly if Burrow struggles or the offensive line struggles, or if, God forbid, Burrow has another season where he's battered like he was last year. And so that's certainly going to be something that will be talked about. Now, I think when you watch Burrow, one of the things that helps him with respect to protection breaking down, he does get the ball out of his hands pretty quickly. He's got a good mind, good eyes, good discipline, good decision-making, and a very quick release. He doesn't have the most overpowering arm in NFL history. There are a lot of questions about him from an arm talent perspective. But from a quick release, quick decision-making perspective, he has that. He's also fairly good in terms of pocket mobility. He's not a super athlete, but he can move. He can extend. He can use his footwork in the pocket to create space. He can evade pressure when it comes from a point, a pressure point where he knows where it could come from. And so I think that will help him if this offensive line isn't what Cincinnati's hoping it will be. But yeah, you, David, you're right. The decision to draft Chase is going to be one that people will point at, particularly if that group struggles again. Indeed, Mark. And now on to the Miami Dolphins, where people might be having a debate very soon about who should play quarterback for that team in the long run, because today it was reported that the Texans are finally shopping Deshaun Watson. And as Benjamin Albright reported, the Dolphins are expected to be one of those three teams aggressively pursuing him. And Benjamin Albright even guessed that Deshaun Watson would go to the Dolphins as opposed to the Eagles, who have been the clear front runner in the minds of many. But the legal issues obviously surrounding Sean Watson muddy the water here as further evidenced by the 10 criminal complaints just filed against him today. So my question is, should the Dolphins do whatever it takes to get to Sean Watson or should they just play out the season with Tua Tungavailoa under center and see what he has? You know, I'm of the mindset, David, that they should see what they have in Tua. Um, now, if you were to ask me that question, say, in January, I would have told you, look, you have the opportunity to acquire an elite quarterback of Deshaun Watson's talent then you do what you can to get him. But now with this sort of ongoing legal situation, like you said, you know, we're recording this on Tuesday, you know, on Monday, and you've got the 10 legal criminal complaints now, in addition to the, you know, civil allegations and civil suits that are pending. And let's not forget, civil litigation moves at a snail's pace. Watson is not scheduled to be deposed until I think February after the season. You know, as somebody that once upon a time and a long time ago, you know, was a civil litigator. It's a slow moving process. And so with that handing out there, it's hard to imagine a team saying, look, we're going to trade for him anyway. Just keep our fingers crossed that, you know, the, the anvil doesn't fall on our head. And so given that, if I'm Miami, you have a talented roster, a team that was on the cusp of the playoffs last year. You were sort of stuck in this hard place between trying to develop to a Tunko Iloa but also make a playoff push with Ryan Fitzpatrick. It, it was a tough situation. Now I think, look, you've got the team. Let's go all in on Tua this year and see what you've got. If it doesn't work out, look, you've got draft capital for next year. You've got draft capital up ahead. You can then make an aggressive push when the Watson situation has sort of sorted itself out. But to make that trade right now, like let's say you make that trade right now and you put Tua in that deal and then something comes out and Roger Goodell steps in and says, look, I'm putting him on the exempt list for 2021. You've lost a season, so you might as well take this opportunity and see what you have in Tua, because I don't think another team is going to make this trade right now, given the uncertainty. So you probably have a season to sort of evaluate things and then come back. I completely agree there, Mark, and for this reason especially. I have been doing a women in sports series on this podcast for the past several weeks because 
the roles women have in the sports industry are getting stronger and more powerful than ever before. Glass ceilings continue to get smashed left, right, and center. We just saw another one last week with the first all-woman broadcast of a Major League Baseball game, and I think it's only a matter of time we get such a broadcast in the NFL and NBA and, and, and NHL. And But this is a cultural thing, too. It's about giving women the benefit of the doubt. These women aren't some crazy conspiracist paid by some random person to file these complaints. These are legitimate legal complaints that deserve our attention, and they deserve a full and solicitous hearing in court. And if we are truly about women's empowerment, not just on this podcast, but in the sports industry itself and in the NFL itself, NFL clubs, hold your fire and do not trade for Deshaun Watson until this legal mess gets sorted out because you cannot say that you support the empowerment of women and and prematurely acquire somebody who's been accused of physically harming women. Yeah, I think that's extremely well said, David. I think it's exactly right. Like th this is a situation that deserves to be heard. It deserves to, it is worthy of the merit and examination in the court of law. And that, look, like you said, these aren't people that are suing for millions and millions of dollars. A lot of these people are suing for not a lot of money at all. They're really just sort of trying to have it heard that, yes, what happened was real. It was not imagined. It was painful what they went through. And so these deserve to be heard in court. And teams, like you said, should sort of wait and see how this plays out because there's a lot of time between now and a potential deposition. Now, potentially this could be settled. This could be resolved. Parties could come to an agreement and then that might change the calculus. But for right now, I can't imagine an NFL front office saying, look, with this handed out there, we're still going to trade three first round picks in the future for a player that could land on the commissioner's exempt list in the next couple of days. Indeed. And uh, on to the Los Angeles Chargers and Justin Herbert. And after his historic 2020 Offensive Rookie of the Year campaign, the skies are shining even brighter for Justin Herbert. The Chargers offensive line, unlike the Bengals, is at least on paper one of the most dramatically improved units in the entire National Football League, given the additions of Corey Lindsley, Matt Filer, and Rashawn Slater. And he is rightfully being touted as a 2021 league MVP candidate, especially given Patrick Mahomes' inadvertent comments about him. But if there's anything that could hold him back to some degree in year two, it is the fact that he has to learn an entirely new playbook again as Joe Lombardi brings his offense over from New Orleans. And Justin Herbert himself admitted the difficulty of learning the Lombardi system. Would you expect somewhat of a rough start to the season for Justin Herbert? No, I, I do think that there will be a bit of a learning curve. Now, thankfully for Herbert and for a lot of these younger quarterbacks, we're going to get a more traditional training camp preseason, preseason games. And so there will be more opportunities to sort of test your knowledge of the system of the playbook. And so I do think that, that while there will be a learning curve, it won't be ridiculously steep where Herbert is going to struggle like for the first half of the season. I think there might be a, a week or two early where he certainly has some struggles. Um, but I do think that his talent level, his ability to do the two things that I think matter so much for young quarterbacks, which is read and throw against leverage and put the football where it needs to be and to cre create with your legs and your athleticism to extend plays in the pocket. He does those things too, so well. And those are the two things that I think young quarterbacks have to have that. Yeah. I think even if there are a couple of bumps, his talent level, like we saw last year, and perhaps more importantly, his ability to throw when pressured, he was one of the best quarterbacks last year when pressured in the pocket. If that continues, and I have no reason to doubt that it won't, I think he's going to be fine, just fine. 
I think he's going to be just fine as well. The sky is the limit for Justin Herbert. And he is Mark Schofield, ladies and gentlemen of the USA Today Touchdown Wire. Mark, thank you so much once again for joining us. And that's it for today here on Sports Crunch. But our nonstop NFL coverage continues in just a matter of days with my good friend Carl Dummler. So stay tuned. Meanwhile, be sure to follow Mark on Twitter at Mark Schofield. You can also follow me on Twitter at dcrom 59 and on Instagram at Sports Crunch with dcrom. For Mark Schofield, this is David Cromwell saying so long, and as usual, stay awesome, stay safe, stay sane, and please get your COVID-19 vaccine if you haven't done so yet. I promise you that it will literally save your life. Take care, cats and kittens, and stay cool.